Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lovely day. We thank you that we can gather together in this place to worship you, to open your word, and this morning to talk about the offices that your son Jesus fulfilled on our behalf, Lord. And we know that every time we tried to fill these offices to bring your word down to our own ears, it was perverted. To bring our praise and sacrifice into your presence, it was... Uh, tainted, and Lord, certainly to reign on your behalf. It was always mixed in with our own pride and our own agenda, and Lord, we're so thankful that Jesus came and fulfilled all three of these offices on our behalf, and, and Lord, we thank you that he is the true Israel, and the promises made to the Israel of old are fulfilled in him, and therefore they are for us, and we are just so thankful for that, and we pray that you would open our eyes all the more this morning to what Jesus did uh, on our behalf, and, and Lord, that we would never cease to be in awe of, of what Jesus accomplished when he came and walked amongst us and lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death and rose again. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen. All right, so we are on question 23, and the question is, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? And the answer is, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Got a little uh, Kim there at the very end. Let's try it again, everybody. I I know. All right, ready? How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. And you might say that in some sense then, every prophet through the ages, every true prophet had that same role to a lesser extent. Jesus takes these things to their conclusion, to their completion, but all all prophets were coming to reveal by the word of God, thus saith the Lord, or an oracle from the Lord, uh, and through the Spirit, the will of God for the people's salvation. Usually, though, what was the response? Okay, both of those. Mix those together and you get, uh, we're going to stone you to death. Uh, Jesus often references how the people, the ancestors of the Pharisees had uh, killed the prophets, shut them up, and, you know, I mean, you have thrown them down in wells. We're, we're sawn people in half. It's sad. Uh, and so Jesus came knowing that he would bring the word, the, the will of God for our salvation, and in return, he would be rejected, despised, and ultimately killed. Uh, let's look at a, a bunch of scriptures, because anything that scripture has to say is better than anything that I have to say. Uh, Acts 3.22 you probably have a bookmark in Acts there, I'm guessing. And in Acts chapter 3, uh, what do we have going on? This is just after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, early, early, early days of the church. And Peter, with John, never far away, is going into the temple courts to proclaim the gospel, is healing people, is really starting this, uh, this whole church movement with a bang. Uh, let's hear Acts 3.22. This is Peter summing up 
the Old Testament and then segueing into what Jesus did, which is a common, it's called the kerygma, very common uh, mode of preaching in the book of Acts. For Moses said, the Lord, Lord your God will raise up and raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Okay, and so Jesus, in quoting that, the implication, or Peter rather, in quoting that, the implication is that Jesus was that very prophet. We'll look at that text in which whoever wrote the very end of Deuteronomy says that about Moses uh, in a minute. Uh, how about uh, Luke 4, 16 to 20? When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free. And at that time, oh, I'm sorry, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Through 20? Yeah. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Now, what? first of all, where is he when this, this little episode goes down? Nazareth, right? And how do they receive him? Are they really jacked? Like, yeah, all right. Hometown boy makes good and is ultimate prophet. No, what do they do? Isn't that Mary's boy? He's <laughs> just a kid. Verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So Jesus will say of himself and his hometown in at least two of the Gospels, I think all three synoptics perhaps, a prophet is only without honor in his own town. So he identifies himself as a prophet. Peter identifies him as a prophet when preaching in the temple courts. And Jesus here shows himself to be not only the ultimate prophet, conduit of God's word, uh, or actually the word in the flesh, right, come to re reveal God's word to us, but also the content of all of these prophecies. When he's handed, here's today's reading, it wouldn't have mattered what it was. If it was a promise, he could have read it and said, fulfilled right here. You see, in your eyes, because here I am. And so he is both the prophet and the content of the prophecy. And we'll see the same thing with the, the priest role as well. There's something different about Jesus. In, in the Old Testament, prophets were commissioned, and it seems like they were commissioned not like on a, a tenured, salaried basis, but uh, kind of in a, a more adjunct way, right? Uh, as outside contract. There were 1099 employees of God. Uh, every time there was a prophecy, right, you see a new... Uh, commissioning, maybe not every time, but read Isaiah, and it's not just once, and then he's like, well, now I'm a made prophet. It's God has a message for the people. He comes, and, and the most famous commissioning picture in all of the scriptures is Isaiah, 
in the throne room of God. He sees the train of the garment filling the temple with glory. And he says what in response to the commissioning? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. You can't expect these babies to bring a pure message. Uh, and I am, live amongst the people of unclean lips. And then the angel comes and takes the tongs and out of the ceremonial fire where the incense is offered up, takes one of the coals, puts it to his lips and purifies him. But they don't stay pure forever. He's like, here, you can do this one now. So Jesus becomes this prophet who he's born a prophet. He's, he's born uh, ready to go. Now, uh, when I preached a, a couple years ago on uh, the three kings, the three magi, or however many magi there were with their three gifts, um, we talked about how there have been those who've taken the gold, frankincense, and myrrh and tried to apply them to this threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, in which case, which one is prophet? Myrrh. Why? Because that's for burial. That's, it's the saddest of them. The priest gets the frankincense because that's how the prayers go out. Uh -huh. The king gets the gold because it's king. And the, and the myrrh would be because a prophet is pretty well doomed to be put yeah. to death. Yeah, I, think, I do think it's a bit of a stretch to find that in those three. But, I mean, I'm not saying it's entirely wrong. Uh, and th I think the one where it's a stretch is the, is the myrrh. Uh, the, the idea of him being a priest and then the myrrh being that he's the sacrifice, to me, seems to make the most sense. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's the role of a prophet. And that's, there was no line to be a prophet. Today, you have a lot of people claiming to be prophets. Go on Google and just look up prophet, modern day prophet, and you will go on YouTube and look at it. You will have no end. Everyone's like, it's me. I'm the prophet. Mm, not in ancient Israel. That was not an easy life. Uh, and if you wanted to serve in one of those, I mean, king, sure. Right? Yeah, I'll have all the women I can, you know, like Solomon. I'll have all the gold. I'll import peacocks and baboons just because I want to see what they look like. Priest, okay, I'll get the best portion of everything and have all this power. And, and in, in Jesus' day, I'll actually have some sway with, with Rome and with Caesar. And, 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 you know, yeah, no problem. Prophet, not so much. That, that one was not a real fun job. Uh, let's flip back to Deuteronomy. Could someone go to Deuteronomy 18 and someone to Deuteronomy 34? Let's start with Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12. Okay. 34, 10? Yeah. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. How far? Twelve. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So what set Moses apart from all the prophets before him and from his day until the writing of this book? Of Deuteronomy. The signs and wonders, and mighty yeah. power and great deeds of terror. <laughs> There's one. Well, I don't know. Because yeah. Elijah, I mean, he called down fire from heaven, and there were some signs and wonders stuff going on there. Now, that would be after, we believe, the writing of Deuteronomy, so that could not 
that, that could be the case without contradiction. But my understanding is that based on the next text we're going to read, the one who is greater than Moses wouldn't come until Jesus. Um, what was it then maybe if we look a little closer to the beginning of that, in verse 10, that statement, that claim that there has not arisen a prophet since. Yeah, he knew the Lord face to face. Moses would go into the tent of meeting and sit down with God. And you say, hold on, how does that work with uh, the statement of John? No one has seen God at any time. Well, clearly he's not seeing God in a physical form. He is having an encounter with the divine. Maybe he's just looking right into the Shekinah glory which later is, you know, always just reserved in the, the Holy of Holies and only ever, you know, encountered once a year and with eyes averted and in fear and trembling, Moses would go in and he'd come out and the dude was shiny because he'd been in God's presence. So he had such a, and it wasn't anything about Moses. I mean, who's Moses? He's a bureaucrat in Pharaoh's court until God grabs him and gets a hold of him. Uh, and so from the very beginning, though, right there at the burning bush, he is looking face to face at the presence of God. Um, we would probably say the sun, right, uh, being the representation of God, the exact representation of God to him for, for him to interact with and the word to be delivered to him. And from that moment on, he and God, there's a weird familiarity there even where Moses even to talk about Elijah, right? When he says stuff like, I need to see you, you come and talk to me. It's not, it's not the kind of familiar conversation that we see sometimes between Moses and God, where there's give and take. It's, I'm going to shock and awe you with fire and earthquakes, and then when you fall on your face, then I'll come and comfort and whisper to you. But even mixed in that is this commission, go and do these things. You're, you're on the job. With Moses, when he gets upset, there's a give and take. God, God relents when he's talking to Moses. So, so he's a different kind of, of prophet. Uh, and, and nobody in Israel, in the whole Old Testament, gets to that level with God. God was uh, revealing something about himself at the outset of national Israel uh, coming under the law that doesn't need to be re-revealed. How about uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19? So this is the promise from Moses' own lips. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So there is a very clear promise from Moses himself. If you wait long enough, another is coming. Uh, who can who can bring the the word of God like I have and and uh, the idea that you will listen to him and, and talking about a voice from heaven certainly brings back to brings to mind a different mountain the Mount of Transfiguration where the voice says from heaven this is my beloved son 
listen to him, right? So again, God indicating that prophet you've been waiting for, here he is. Listen up. Uh, how, how then is Jesus the same as Moses and how is he different in, in his office as prophet? I mean, obviously being God in the flesh, he's different, but in how he executes the office of prophet, how is he, how is he the, the prophet like Moses and how is he completely unlike Moses? Always. <laughs> well, God doesn't have to tell him what to say. Because he is God. Okay. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy. So, yeah, Moses is giving these prophecies, but Jesus is almost in this circle of even in prophesying, he's fulfilling prophecy. It's almost like the the two different types of prophesying. So, Moses seems to be doing a lot of foretelling and... Jesus seems to be doing a lot of explaining what these all mean. So Moses is doing a lot of foretelling and Jesus foretelling. Yeah, uh, although both do both. I mean, certainly Jesus tells us a lot of what will happen when he comes again. There's the Olivet Discourse and this sort of thing. Yeah, there's, there, were, there were prophecies that were shrouded in darkness in the Old Testament that Jesus says, the light of the world is here to shine a light on them, and now you see what it was. Uh, a lot of those. I want to get back to Sean's thing, where he said, being God himself, he didn't need to hear a word from the Lord. As a man, with the Holy Spirit having come upon him at the baptism, is it possible that he did, like the other prophets of old, receive oracles by the Spirit from God? Straight on without asking? He spent an awful lot of time in prayer if he wasn't asking anything. So I'm thinking he probably still did. Can you explain that? No. <laughs> Are you saying that, well, like, in prayer, he's being you? told in prayer what to say? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, I didn't take a direction. Mm-hmm. Where, where am I supposed to go next? What am I supposed to do? What do you want me to say to these guys? To play Jesus' advocate, I must say devil's advocate, but that doesn't work when we're talking about the Trinity. Um, one might say that Jesus spent so much time in prayer simply because he had spent literally forever in communion with the Father and the Spirit, and the only natural state for him was to be always and continually in communion with the Father through the Spirit. Uh, so perhaps it's possible that he was doing all this praying without, uh, like we would think of maybe Jonah going, you know, into a trance or something and receiving the word to deliver. Well, he, yeah, this gets confusing because, so he is a man, but he is also God. And you don't exactly know in all ways how he limited himself, right? So it seems like he would know whatever the father knows, but he doesn't seem to know everything that the father knows. Yeah, there, are, there are times when he says, only the five, really only one comes to mind, but we, we have to assume that in setting aside his glory, he temporarily, you know, like, like someone who says, um, hide this and I'm, I don't want to know. I could know at any time, but, you know, I don't want to know where it is for the moment. I thought he didn't become a man by subtracting. Right. I feel like we already... <laughs> if, if I say, 
Sean, do me a favor. Um, put this thing aside and don't tell me where it is until Christmas or something. I'm not becoming less than what I was before that. I'm choosing to set something aside. If I say uh, for the rest of the day, I'm going to walk around uh, with my eyes closed. I don't become less. I, I still have sight. I'm choosing to set aside something. So there, there's a big difference between choosing to set aside in his sovereignty uh, certain aspects of the glory of being God so that he will be one of us in, in, in the experience and walk in our shoes and, and therefore fulfill the law as a human. There's a big difference between that and him saying, I don't have sovereignty anymore. And, and like, I mean, my, I, I feel like if, you know, if, if there's a tendency to want to point at his setting things aside as um, less, him becoming less, and therefore his experience meaning less. I see it as his experience meaning more, because at any moment he could have always, uh, you know, called on the 10,000 angels, made any problem disappear, made any temptation. I mean, he could, have, he could have willed Satan out of existence when he was being tempted. Instead, he stood under the temptation. So choosing to become someone who's susceptible to hunger and choosing to continue to be someone who's susceptible to hunger is an act of power, not an act of weakness because his power has been stripped of him. He's set aside by choice and by an act of his sovereign will, those things which make him uh, eternally and perfectly happy, which is one of the perfections of God. He's always, in a sense, the subject. He's never an object when it comes to stuff like that. He's never, and things aren't being, things aren't acting upon him. He is deciding and he's acting with his. I guess on, on, as, as touches the Godhood. And that's where you get into the Athanasian Creed, where it talks about how equal with God as touches the Godhood less than God as touches his manhood. And so there, there is a sense in which Jesus walking around is less than um, omnipotent and omnipresent in his humanity, not in his divinity. In his divinity, he simply set these things aside. Uh, I can tell that Sean's not going to be convinced. Um, I don't know how... Should be resolved. Yeah, yeah, and I think that it comes down to that. But, but Sean, if... If we were all say, okay, yeah, it does seem like he something was subtracted from him. Uh, I think at that point, then you have a less than adequate substitute on the cross, and uh, we all ought to be highly concerned about whether or not there's any salvation for us. Uh, he has to be. Anselm shows he has to be God. He has to be man. Uh, and we're actually going to answer a little more adequately that question, why the God-man, with the next um, question in the catechism, uh, which I think we might be able to get to today. Um, so let's move on to another way in which Jesus is different. Matthew 7, as I start to read this, you're going to go, oh, I see, I remember. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law, as their scribes. So Jesus is coming in a different way from the prophets of the Old Testament and also a different way from the teachers of his world 
because he does not have to, and this I think is different from talking about the source, whether or not he, he just looks within himself to find the prophecies or receives them from, from uh, God, uh, there's also the authority. He simply speaks based on his own authority, his own truth. He is the truth, and so he can proclaim the truth without having to say, just like Rabbi so-and-so says, or even quote scripture. He does quote scripture a lot, but there are teachings of Jesus that don't hinge on something from the Old Testament, and they're equally authoritative. In fact, the, the idea that the red letters are more authoritative uh, is not good, <laughs> because uh, it's all equally the word of God, but when we put his words in red, there is something uh, that just reminds us, this is the words of the word, and yeah, just don't mess with this stuff. This is this you want to submit yourself to. Uh, and when you submit yourself to it, you're not becoming less than you were before. It's not a subtraction. It's a, uh, right? it's a choice to submit to, to God. Uh, and, and thank God that that's how he taught, because A, it's part of what made the crowds come to him, because he made him a novelty. But B, it showed that he is not just another in a whole long line of kind of failed prophets, which is what the world wants to say about Jesus, right? Uh, I, in fact, that one lady who's always chewing her face on all the PBS documentaries and History Channel documentaries from Yale Divinity School, I heard her on a podcast just last week saying, uh, Jesus came and taught all this stuff, and the reason that he failed and was crucified was because, and I was like, oh my gosh, you teach at Yale Divinity School, one of the first truly sound doctrinal American seminaries, and yet you don't know anything anything about Jesus. How ironic is that? Uh, when he came, he brought his own authority, and when he was crucified, it didn't do anything to his authority. Everything he said, in fact, by his being crucified and rising again, it sealed these things all the more. Uh, and, and we can look back at everything he said saying, this you can take to the bank, because this is the guy who died, and three days later the tomb was empty. And he was popping up all over. So Jesus didn't just bring the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. John chapter 1. Uh, when we look in the Old Testament, there are different words for um, these prophecies that come. There's chazon, which means a vision. Uh, remember in uh, Proverbs, where there is no vision, the people perish. And for a while there, the tendency was to say, see, we need to write down a vision statement. Or we need to really get together around a, a common vision no, 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 no. Chazon, vision, meaning revelation from God to the people. If you want to get together around the vision, here it is. Um, or there is Naum, which is an oracle, a particular string of words. It's coming from God, from the lips of God, into the mind and heart of the prophet, from the lips of the prophet to the people who will probably reject it. Uh, Christ is that, 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 revelation, that unveiling. He reveals what was before unknown to the people, even though it had already been proclaimed. You see, it was Augustine who, who gave us this picture of the whole New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So everything that had been misunderstood or not understood or rejected because it just, what is, what is this all about? Jesus 
reveals it. Being the light, being the word, he's in a unique position to reveal and unveil things that were previously veiled. I think a, a really good example of this is Daniel's visions, and he's told, seal these things up. And then in the book of Revelation, what happens with the scroll that has all the seals on it? By Jesus. By the lamb, right? By the, the lion can open it. He turns and looks. It's the lamb having been slain, obviously Jesus, and he opens all of it. And, and John's weeping because he can't find anyone. And you go, why are you crying, John? Is, is it just because you're kind of a, a wuss, you know? You're, you're leaning against Jesus' chest and you're... No, this guy's a fisherman, right? He's crying because Israel's been waiting forever for these scrolls to be opened. And now the lamb is doing it. And this is the, the whole of salvation is on these scrolls. And so Jesus comes to open and unveil and reveal that which was previously sealed up. That's how he's a very different prophet. His words are, are clear, especially to those who have the Holy Spirit. And when we read them, it's like a spotlight shines on the Old Testament. And there are an awful lot of passages that from the earliest of rabbinical days were understood to be messianic, but how? They didn't know. And then Jesus comes on the scene and we go, oh, that's as clear as can be. There are these passages about a suffering servant and these about a, a reigning king, Messiah. And then there are Jewish communities contemporary with Christ expecting not one but two Messiahs because how could anyone be both? Jesus comes. Boom! Spotlight on those, and oh, it is one Messiah. A suffering Messiah, suffering servant, reigning king. It, it all suddenly, it's like, it's like one of those, what are those called? Those 1990s things that I can finally see? Fract Fractal? Whatever they are. Remember this when you'd go into the mall, and there would be the kiosk, and it'd be like static, and you'd have to relax your eyes, and it'd be like a whale or a schooner or something, and... I couldn't see them from 1990 when they came out to 2015. And then one day I said, Aaron, help me. And we sat at the computer and we found moving ones and stuff. And I was really underwhelmed. But pretend I wasn't because it's like suddenly all this static. No, but that's even perfect. You had a misunderstanding of what you would see. Right. I thought that the static would just disappear and it'd be like a full color picture. Right. <laughs> And instead, the static sort of becomes 3D and it becomes the whale or whatever. Example, like illustration. Because they misunderstood what they would actually see. Right, except objectively, those things are kind of lame <laughs> <laughs> and disappointing. But the way of salvation is something real, unveiled before our eyes. And, and I mean, when we think about the empty tomb, which I'm getting very excited for. I mean, I'm always excited about it, but, I, but celebrating it on Easter... That is the ultimate in the final, like, here's this revelation of who this guy is. And it should have been very clear right off the bat, but then you still have Cleopas and the other guy walking, or, or Cleopas and his wife, I believe, walking down the road and Jesus coming up and, hey, what are you talking about? Oh, we had hoped that he would be the, and Jesus, he's like, ah, more light, more word, until he finally has everyone understanding what it's all been about takes 40 more days, and then he's out of here. And that is how Jesus is a prophet. He came to shine the light on the final dimension. 
you know, to, to bring this 2D static into a 3D object that the people could hold on to. And, and then he said, okay, my work here is done for now. I'll, I'll be back. But here's, here's the gospel and here's the, the word of God, the will of God for salvation, the, the way in which God has provided it. Go tell everybody. In a sense, you're all prophets now. Not like Moses, but uh, in a new way. So this is an a amazing thing to think about. This, of all of them, uh, I think, you know what? The prophet, priest, king, threefold thing is undeniable, I'm going to say. Each of them, clearly, the New Testament pr- pr- uh, portrays Jesus as fulfilling. It's just that putting it together as this threefold office, kind of summing up his mission, is, is not uh, found in the, the early church fathers or anyone. It's a little later. Uh, of a, a development in, in theology. Go flip over to Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Let's do this. Let's, we've, we've already said all we need to about how Jesus is different, I think, uh, and how he's the same. Let's talk about then the, the kind of office of prophet. 1, 1 through 3. Someone read that for us. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, if that was the only passage in the New Testament we had about prophets and the kind of overall arc of what happened with prophets, what would you assume was the case? say, present day, or even right after Jesus' ascension. Whether or not there's more prophets, whether prophets continue to be a thing. Aaron, what was that? Okay. Well, if it's these last days and he's done something different, it feels like this is, this is the end. Right, there's a dis- distinction here. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days which is often just code for the church age, starting with the first advent of Christ. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then the, next, the, the rest of the clauses there in the next two and a half verses are all describing how Jesus coming has been a game changer and has been definitive. That would seem to indicate prophets are a thing of the past, right? Jesus was the one that we'd been waiting for. He was the last one. He was the ultimate one. He was the exact representation of God to us, the radiance of God's glory, sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you tried to come in now and be a a prophet after that without the radiance of God's glory and sustaining everything by your powerful word, but just like saying stuff, it'd be kind of feeble and pointless, right? So is that the case? Or is there other scripture that might indicate that there are continually prophets and that there is a place for the role of prophet? Yeah, because Paul gives rules for how people are to prophesy in churches. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we looked at that uh, in our women in ministry class quite a bit. Uh, remember, one person at a time, and then the people will weigh the prophecy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Women have to have their head covered when they're doing it. I mean, would it make sense to have all these rules if he's like, oh, but by the way, remember, that's not anything we do anymore. But if we did, this would be the way to do it. Okay, so there's that. There's also, I mean, what if I said, okay, so 
Aaron already made the distinction between forth-telling and foretelling. Foretelling being proclaiming the future and forth-telling being kind of exposition, explaining God's word, both of which are things that prophets do in the Old Testament. And we said, all right, that's actually, the, the definitive word has now been given on future. Jesus is coming again, and we have that all written in the scriptures. So now it's just about expounding on that. So prophecy is essentially what I do at the pulpit on Sunday morning, what Lisa does at the pulpit. It's forth-telling, explaining and proclaiming. Can you think of anything in scripture, maybe that we've looked at recently on a Sunday morning, that would challenge that idea? Maybe. Does the name Agabus ring a bell to anybody? No? Really? Good old Aggie? Agaboss. That's what he would say if he got a home run. I don't know. Just stalling for you to remember or look him up. Agabus, our guy, is a, a prophet who predicts the coming famine. Right? Yeah. And then later on, he's going to predict Paul's arrest, uh, I think. I mean, like, like this is a, a prophet after Jesus who is predicting the future accurately by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, one way to deal with that is to say, well, book of Acts, weird stuff happening. Part of this is that the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures haven't yet been written. So God is using signs and wonders and all this miraculous and amazing stuff to grab people's attention and and to kind of convey the gospel because they don't have the uh they don't have the word of god to do it and once the word of god comes and then there's a scripture from first corinthians 13 when the perfect comes these things will pass away but that's very very weak another way is to simply say it looks like in the New Testament, most of the time there's prophecy. It's forthtelling, explaining, expounding, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes, about as often as you see something like healing or tongues, things that we as Baptists usually don't embrace, but that we see in the New Testament, granted, we see them with probably less and less emphasis and less and less frequency as we go through the New Testament. But we do see them there, that there may be a place. If someone actually stood up on a Sunday morning, and it wasn't some quack that you didn't know or some weirdo off the street, but was one of us who, maybe an elder or a, uh, maybe not someone who's on the elder board, but an elder of the church or someone who's really rooted in the word of God and a mature believer, and they said, I have a word I think is from God about what's going to happen here and what we need to do. How would you take that? Would you give that some serious consideration or would you go, whoa, Richard's gone off the deep end? I think that's an interesting distinction, people you know versus people you don't. Because I would not believe anybody who just came off the street. But if somebody that we've known for years said something like that, I absolutely would think I should think about this. Like, we would be some consideration. We'd want to weigh it, right? Like the scriptures say, we'd want to compare it to God's word. Right. I, I know a guy who uh, was talking to someone he didn't know at all. He's a pastor talking to someone he didn't know at all. And they were saying, uh, my spiritual life is just a mess. I feel empty. I feel like God's not with me. I feel abandoned. And he's part of a more charismatic tradition. 
He said, suddenly he had like a sense from God overwhelmingly. And he said, well, that's because you've been cheating on your wife for the last few years, isn't it? And as soon as he said it, he was like, oh, crap, what am I doing? And they started weeping. And they, were like, yeah, they had. And now I hear a story like that, and it doesn't, doesn't, I think it's cool. It doesn't blow my mind. It doesn't make me go, whoa, I have to reevaluate everything. I don't have the gift of prophecy. Some are given as prophets, right? I, I have the gift of teaching and preaching. And I think it says in the scripture, do not despise a prophet. So it would be something I would think we'd have to give heed to. Now, I would hope if it was an elder or if it was anyone, they would probably come to the assembled elders, the church leadership, and say, I'm going to do this. Let's pray about this. Let's talk about this beforehand so that it doesn't become uh, any more jarring than it has to be. But yeah, I don't think we should ex just dismiss it out of hand. I think, I think the unfortunate thing is that most, most people I see claiming that title for themselves um, also claim a lot of spotlight for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that even if they started with a real true feeling, it can become like, oh, this is my persona. And I got to keep this up now. I, I got to keep this up. I got my television show. I got my books to sell, you know, mm -hmm. and, I, and that feels very fake to me. But if it were just some regular person who's not gaining anything from this, then why wouldn't you at least think about it? I think it might have been Thomas Watson who said, I'm going to butcher this quote, but it was like, if your extra biblical revelation uh, contradicts scripture, it is not true. If it does not contradict scripture, it is not necessary. Uh, and and if, if, you're, if your revelation from God contradicts scripture, it's not true. If it doesn't contradict scripture, it's not necessary. But I think you make in that a false disjunction. It, like, I can give you new information about your genealogy, and you can say, well, hold on, if it contradicts what I've already learned by all my research, then it's false, and if it doesn't, I don't need it. Well, no, hold on, it's just more stuff, right? So, so it, the assumption that the, the scriptures say everything about everything is not true. We do believe that they say everything we need for life and holiness. We do believe they are all sufficient for us. There is no 67th book of the Bible that someone's going to receive from God that's for everyone. But the question still remains, might God sometimes speak to a group of people through someone in a prophetic role in order to lead that group of people in a way that doesn't get added to the Bible because it's not for everybody? doesn't contradict God's word, but it addresses a particular situation or a particular place and, and time. Well, I think you hear that those stories sometimes from missionaries, where there are things that go on that seem very much like signs and wonders or miraculous things. And a lot of times it's in a group of people that's still trying to be reached. Maybe they don't even have the scriptures yet in their language. You, know, you hear those a lot from people who are working in different countries. Now, how does prophecy fit into that? Oh, that's a good question. A lot of times, those like, if you've read Eternity in Their Hearts, unreached groups will have already had prophecies. When we get to Acts uh, 19, 19, where uh, he's on Mars Hill, I, I'm going to take my time with that one because there are so many analogous stories. Uh, and there's so much to the background of the unknown God that you probably don't know, that is unknown to you. Uh, I, I didn't know until um, I'd already been through seminary. But uh, the idea of 
yeah, an unreached group needing the same sort of stuff that the world needed when they, when they were unreached and didn't have access to the scriptures and kind of weaning off of that and God's word being enough is, is very appealing to, to the Western church right yeah. now. Well, and I wonder if the Western church will eventually enter into like an age where those things start happening again because mm-hmm. nobody gives credence to the word. Right, right. Yeah, as, as you become a, a once again a persecuted minority, maybe like like the house church movement in China, seeing miracles all the time, uh, maybe we will need more and more of them uh, to sustain us. Uh, I, I think that right at the moment we have the opposite, that misuse of the idea of chazon vision being this vision idea that's given to every pastor. So every pastor then has this prophetic role, uh, and you know there are all sorts of quotes stacked up all over the place by discernment bloggers and apologists where pastors say things like, if you don't get in line with the vision God gave me, we're going to throw you off the bus, you know, and, and if you, if you oppose the vision God gave me, you're a danger to the church and that sort of thing. That's, I mean, that's not unusual at all. That's, that's the kind of stuff that I hear taught when I go to ministry conferences. Yeah. Protect your vision. God gave it to you. Okay, hold on. Are you assuming then that I have the gift of prophecy and am functioning in that role? Or maybe instead of me saying, I'm the pastor, God gave me the vision and you better get on board or rejecting it is like rejecting scripture, a plurality of elders and deacons and the whole congregation ought to just seek God here and instead we we find him here and I I think that the danger right now even in churches that wouldn't say oh time for prophecy is the assumption that God has uh, ordained the office of pastor to always be prophetic and at any given time the trump card is well no God told me that this is what we're doing so stop opposing God if you don't like it that's dangerous that's dangerous stuff and I'm thankful that I don't think this church would put up with it. But, you know, almost none of the churches where that had. In fact, that's part of the training you get. Uh, I won't say his last name, but Dan S., very, very famous guy. Uh, me and Ross Lucas actually walked right out of his thing at Green Lake one time. We were like, I can't take this anymore. He's like, me neither. And we left. He's going, once you start implementing this kind of vision casting and visioning, you're going to have a lot of people leave the church. And you have to tell them, well... Don't let the door hit you on the way out. You have to realize it's not about you. And that'll, those are blessed subtractions. And then more people will come to you because of the power of your vision. What? I'm sorry. I can't find that nonsense in my scriptures. And so I, I, I see that as being kind of the challenge to our slice of the church when it comes to prophecy right now. Um, too willing to accept anything as long as it's in the, the uh, kind of parlance of corporate America, vision statements and missions and yeah, yeah. And and very pragmatic. This will grow things. Yeah. So you're allowed to speak prophetically or often people talk about speaking prophetically when it comes to issues of social justice and things that the church needs to take on a, like a prophetic role where it was idolatry and social injustice that got the prophets really, really mad in the old Testament and fired up and they'd come in and, and rebuke that the church has a responsibility to speak prophetically in that way. And that's not proclaiming the, or pr- predicting the future. It's proclaiming God's truth um, that to despise the, the alien amongst you or to uh, 
uh, in some way uh, oppress the poor and downtrodden is to store up God's wrath against the day of wrath. Church has a responsibility to speak prophetically in that way. Um, any, any other ways that, that prophecy kind of after Christ, the ultimate, ultimate prophet has already come, prophecy kind of continues as a stream through the New Testament come, come to mind for you? Well, wouldn't John's whole vision be? Right, right, yeah. So anytime someone received um, the word of God that wound up being in our scriptures, there's a prophetic element because it's uh, the inerrant word of God given to us. But we believe now the canon's closed. What if someone came up to you, even if it was someone you knew, and said, God told me that you are to do X, Y, or Z? I've actually had that happen. Really? Oh, when you, were, when you worked in the, the what yeah. was it, the rights office or something? I've wanted a lot of people's books published. What's a good answer to something like that? God told me you were going to sell me that car for three grand instead of the 14. <laughs> right. Well, I will wait and see if he tells me as well. Right. That seems to be how it works. He doesn't say, Cornelius, show up at Paul's house and push your way in. He says, Cornelius, <laughs> hold on. Or Peter's house, rather. Peter, now there's this Cornelius guy. Let him in. He, he clues both sides in. And so if someone tries to use the notion of prophecy as some kind of trump card or backdoor in, you know, to control in the church or control in your life or something, there's no room for that in the scriptures. That's well, shouldn't, shouldn't God's word ultimately always bring freedom to people rather than control? I mean, if you're going to, if you accept the gospel, then you're given freedom. You know, it doesn't seem like that's, and like when people repented, they were given freedom in a way. They weren't being oppressed. They stopped oppressing other people, you know? It seems like if somebody used that to say, well, you have to do this for me, that would be odd. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. And I think I'll just end on this note. I think that you will find the case, you will find it to be the case if you, if you do a study of every reference to prophets and prophecy in the New Testament epistles, almost every single one of them is about false prophets and false prophecy. So Jesus is very big on this. Eyes open. Wolves in sheep's clothing, false prophets, false Christs. Do not buy into everything. St. John, test the spirits. Make sure they are of God. Don't be quick to just jump on board with whether it's some uh, mystic who walks into your congregation and starts spouting stuff off or some trend in the church with lots of hashtags and, and buzzwords. Test the spirits. Don't assume that something being big means it's from God. Don't assume something being new means it's from God. Doesn't that statement also imply that there will be true prophets? I think so, yeah. Otherwise it would say, forget it, the spirits are all bad, yeah. In fact, some true prophets, they will come. Yeah, yeah. They'll also be false prophets, right. And I think, I, I really do believe that you can look back through some of the greatest preachers, uh, even going back very recently, and, and say these people operate in a very prophetic way. Uh, Spurgeon, for sure. Uh, even Billy Graham, to some degree. I mean, prophets often came and ushered in times of revival. And when you see uh, somebody coming with a message saying, this message is from God, and it lines right up with this stuff.